HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cabot Creamery, celebrating 100 years of being a dairy farm family-owned cooperative. Learn more at cabotcheese.coop. That's cabotcheese.coop. Why is Heritage Radio Network important to you? HRN is very nostalgic to go into because it's really the only place that you have this really warm, homey experience to watch people get together and talk about the things that really make a difference. It's really fun when I ask guests, do you want to be on Heritage? And they're like, Albertas, yes, 100%. I believe that we all are really trying to bring people together. I think getting more people excited about good, local, well-crafted food and away from big ag and tasteless commodity food is so important kind of an honor to be sitting there with somebody in a space where so many other people have sat. Join HRN's vibrant community of thoughtful eaters. Become a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hey, and welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And today we have Andrew Scrivani, our only three-time guest. So check out episode one, or don't. That is by and far my worst episode. Oh, I don't know about that. Episode uh, 236, which I, I think was my fifth year anniversary in this one. Uh, well, Scrivani has become one of the most recognized food photographers in the field today. From his work for the New York Times and numerous cookbooks and ad campaigns, Scrivani now adds author to his repertory with his tell-all handbook to the biz. That photo makes... Wait. That photo makes me hungry. Yes, I got it correct. All right. Step-by-step tips, which include seeing the light, composing the shot, telling a story, and making a living by turning passion into profit. Thank you, Andrew. Hey, I'm glad to be back. This is great. So we've known each other for quite a long time now. Yeah, right, right. Uh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't pinpoint when we actually met. I couldn't remember. Th- those are the best meetings, that right. it just seamlessly melds into your life. <laughs> but I, I can tell you, you've been on the show in 2010, 2015, and, and today, so just by being here, we have nearly a decade of, of your voice on air. And I kind of want to start there. Um, 
what's happened in the past 10 years? I don't mean in your life in general, <laughs> but food photography has evolved by leaps and bounds. Uh, where do we start? Is it technology? Is it the way we you know, uh, disseminate information, uh, read images? I, I think it's all of those things. I think it's hardware. I think it's software. I think it's you know, all of the things that you know, have become incorporated into what we do every day. And, you know, the emergence of social media as sort of the, the major platform for what we do at, at every level, which, you know, I was thinking about this and I was hoping that this was going to be the first question because <laughs> it's like, you know, to sit there with another person in our field that we've sat there and commiserated and we've you know, celebrated, and we've done a lot of things about the work that I we've like done. I like that you led with commiserated and then celebrated. Well, it's you know, it, it it's it's challenging. It yeah. really is. It's become a very it's become a challenge for those of us who have been around for a while because I, I don't want to be that guy who's screaming "Get off my lawn!" But yeah. man, things change fast. It was so static for so long, mm-hmm. and, and that transition from analog to digital, um, th- then you know, went exponentially uh, crazy. Absolutely, yeah. I think that the, the the styles that were driven by technology when we switched to digital sort of drove food photography in the way that you and I have participated in it for over a decade. And then the last three to four years, um, technology has sort of taken another jump and with the cell phones and with LED lighting and where everybody was shooting DSLR in daylight or, you know, DSLR in strobe is now everything about that particular sort of workflow has changed dramatically. And then, of course, I was sitting in a restaurant with uh, with an Instagram influencer, a, a very nice young guy who was very reverential of the work that guys like you and I have done over the years. And he's making a living with his Pixel 4. You know, and it and it's remarkable. It's in a remarkable piece of technology. There is a level playing field now, uh, whether or not you have a smartphone or you know an actual camera. Um, and you and I both have taught, and I currently teach food photography. How do you teach when you don't know who the person is, what their level of competency is when it comes to photography? Sure, um, and even knowing what equipment they have. Right. I think there are there are some general principles that I try to teach when I'm dealing with a mixed crowd, you know, of people who are either professional photographers who are entering into food photography for the first time, uh, talented amateurs who are skilled on a DSLR, or complete amateurs who deal with only smartphones. And a lot of that is to focus on the idea of composition and go back to art 101, color, shape, form, and start to talk about the things that make good photography so that regardless of what lens you're looking through, you have the ability to start to recognize good photography. And then when you're trying to create it, you know, whatever technology you have, you know, the, the, ca- the best camera you have is the one in, that, you, that you own, you know, as far as learning and getting better at your craft. But I do think that the, the artistic aspects of what we do are the things that have to be focused on with a mixed group of people. Let's talk visually, as we do, um, because we don't have images in front of us to show our listeners. But when you talk about composition, um, 
let's talk about maybe a horizontal frame for now. Sure. Even though when Instagram first started, it was always square, which it, I've been complaining about this lately to my students. Uh, I always equated that to either pulling a Polaroid, which was not the shot. That's right. Or a medium format camera or something larger, which was a much more expensive way of photography. But uh, the, the square has become the most democratic shape for a lot of photographers. Sure. Uh, so what do we do with that shape, that that frame? How do we use that to the best of its ability? Well, I think ultimately it's looking at that as the sort of meat, the, the, the sirloin cut of our, our shots, right? In that I have this, this graph that I designed for a client when I was doing a, an ad campaign and showing it from the square and in, in every aspect ratio that we could possibly use on social media. And I overlaid this graph over the top of the picture and I showed it, it was almost like a butcher design, you know, thing where you could see that there are different parts of this image, but there is one heart of the image from the middle out. And then it grew into whatever frame we wanted it to. And I think you have to give a little bit more space and you have to think in terms of multiple formats when you're teaching people to use the square as the, the heart of the photograph. And then does it still have life once we move away from the square? Does it get horizontal? Does it get more vertical? But it, what you were saying earlier, like the idea that the square became such a ubiquitous form for us, right? And, and that it harkens back to an older time when we began photography with pulling Polaroids for film shoots. But then we went from that into shooting vertical, mostly for magazines and newspapers. And then when the web came out, we had a, you know, we had to adjust to the horizontal frame. So as food photographers, we've had to make that adjustment multiple times in the past two decades, for sure, in, in understanding the frames. Well, I mean, I was a documentary guy. I wanted to be a war photographer, so I was 35 millimeter horizontal all the time. So when I first started shooting food well, the first three and a half years, I did nothing but... Uh, 3,200 black and white, and I pushed, pushed, pushed in kitchens. Sure. So I didn't even introduce I remember those color. shots. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't even introduce color into my, like, repertoire for a while. But it took me a while to even just turn my arm into that, you know, yeah. vertical frame and yeah. realize that, like you said, books and, and magazines. Sure. Yeah, it was interesting. But I think that at the core of it in teaching people who are coming at it from, you know, different backgrounds is understanding the square is a really good way to teach people how to frame properly and then make them understand that this is just the beginning, right? Is that you have to be able to, as a proficient photographer, be able to use every frame that's available to you. And of course, now there are so many different aspect ratios that we have to consider that it should ultimately make you a better photographer when you have to learn how to consider multiple aspect ratios. Do you teach rule of thirds? Do no. You, do you teach that old allegorical photo? No, I joked about it in my book. I joked about it saying, I'll leave that to your, uh, your art, art or photography professor in college because quite honestly, it's sort of a, it's an antiquated thought process in terms of teaching people from that perspective. It's that it, those rules have gone out the window. So I think learning f the frame in general, is a better rule of thumb to start with. Well, I should put my elbow patches on because I do teach that during my <laughs> course, uh, but I teach it in regards to pizza. Okay. Um, let me explain for a second. I mean, we are at Roberta, so it's fitting. Absolutely. Uh, pizza, in my mind, has always come in three different shapes. It's a circle. It's a it's a triangle and it's a square. You know, if you get a Sicilian Detroit, you're style. so geome geometric. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> but I, 
I show them this rule of thirds where you take a, a frame and cut it into you know equal parts. Okay. Um, but then I do the thirds the other way to make nine quadrants, and I say, well, here you could have nine slices of pizza, or you can put the box to the left or the box to the right and put a square in this square, or a circle up here, and so it's less about the rule of thirds and weight and just. It's more about making a dynamic frame sure. to show how many different quadrants or how many places there are to move a piece of pizza into. That's that's amazing. It's a great way to teach it because I think ultimately what it is about moving off this sort of center cut frame that um, making people understand that there are times when offsetting to the right or the left of the frame or the top or the bottom of the frame is artistic, but it's also practical in that we want to lay in type, we want to lay in other photographs, we want to lay in some some headlines or text. And when you're only creating images to post in a square on Instagram, you're never thinking about those things. And I think as a proficient working photographer, you have to be able to deal with a client that says, well, I need you to leave the gutter free and I need you to make sure that you have some space in the top third. And, you know, you need to understand that language and what that means. Yeah, well, I mean, you shoot a lot of cookbooks and ad campaigns. And let's talk about how those are different or similar in that, in that case. I mean, sometimes you are dealing with text overlay and that you, know, sure. you are just about whatever is in frame in that image and making that look beautiful, but then there's all the designers there with. But then in a cookbook, sometimes it's full bleed, just you, but you don't want that repetitive everything in the center kind of cookbook. Absolutely. So how do you think about a single image for a campaign versus a series or sequential for a cookbook? Well, I think in terms of the, um, the the amount of creative input I get too is is generally very different between those two things. In that, an ad campaign a lot of times comes in with full born creative that I don't have a whole lot of room and flexibility to interpret. There are times when I get input there, and I try to make whatever influences I can make. But in terms of cookbooks, at least the cookbook clients I've worked with, I've had a lot of input into. <clears throat> excuse me understanding the nature of not making it look too repetitive, whether that means helping them select the recipes that will be photographed, helping them select the idea of the kind of framing we're going to use and the kinds of spacing we're going to use, how much macro, how much pullback, how much vertical, how much horizontal based on the, the layout and the design that the designer wants to work with. And I've gotten a lot of great feedback from my clients about the kind of hands-on, you know, intervention I take with them. <laughs> good word, good choice. <laughs> Authors have come back to me and they're like, that was therapeutic. Exactly, yeah. right. And I think that, you know, when you work with multiple publishing houses like you and I both have and you work with different types of creatives all the time, you start to glean a lot of great input from them and you also learn a lot of lessons about people injecting themselves into situations that are, you know, run contrary to the creative process. So, you have to learn how to navigate those things. And a lot of it is goes back to, t to talking about how do I make this the best cookbook, ad campaign, you know, whatever it might be. How do I make this better for you uh, as the photographer, as the creative sort of um, overseer in a lot of ways? You know, because I think ultimately the longer you do this in this industry, the more people rely on you as a creative director as much as the photographer. So I think you, you, you put as much of your knowledge of all these things into every, every project. Do you have a writer? Do you have things that you won't photograph? Do you think there are certain foods and dishes that don't photograph well and you haven't solved yet? 
Uh, I don't know that I have a, you know, I don't eliminate things right off the bat, but I definitely will counsel people away from repetitiveness, number one. You know, particularly dark, overly dark dishes that don't have a lot of form and shape. And if there's, there are things that I read the recipe and I'm immediately say, that's monochromatic and it's not going to work without something to break up the color. So I think the input I give on those kinds of things is really not about saying no, because nobody likes to hear no. It's about, this doesn't seem right to me, but here's my solution. And I think that offering the solution to those problems in you know, in real time for clients, especially when you get it at the recipe stage, like we do a lot of times, uh, it's, you're able to anticipate the problems so that they don't kind of bleed into the set. Uh, let's talk about plates versus bowls versus cups. I mean, just the, the tabletop uh, changes the image so much. Sure. Um, do you have a preference over, you know, plate versus bowl? Uh, not necessarily. I think uh, ultimately it, it, it revolves around the, um, the angles at which we shoot, right? Um, if we're shooting straight over the top, I like a wider plate and a, lighter, a wider bowl because so, I could see more uh, and I get a little bit more sort of negative space in my frame. But if I'm lower... On the, on the lower edge or I'm going to be able to drop down right into something, you know, that might influence how I want to shoot it. I think other than shape, I think the thing that influences me more is size, is that I like to downsize everything and be able to catch the edge of the plate and the food simultaneously. And a lot of times when you're plating in restaurants, the, the plate is so much bigger than the food that all you can see is the plate itself, not the edge of the plate, unless you get really far away. But if you want that intimate feeling with the food, what you do is downsize the plates so that the food is big in the frame, plus you still see the edge, you can still see the fork on the side, whatever it might be, it gives you a really intimate feel. I feel like that's a good way of convincing yourself to, to have a prop closet with small plates. You know, New York real estate. Oh is. my God. <laughs> Let me tell you, I mean, my, my, my prop collection has overrun my studio and I've, I've started to cull it a little bit because clearly, I mean, I think the overall tone of what we're shooting these days is a lot less proppy. It's a lot cleaner. I don't use as many surfaces. It's a lot less rustic. So I think it, it, it gives me the opportunity to sort of cull that collection a little bit. I mean, what are the words that define your style now? I mean, I think clearly my style is still defined by the way I light things. I mean, it always, I think it always has, and I think it's evolved over time. And then I necessarily, the strangest part of it all is that I don't light with daylight really anymore. It's like I'm shooting with movie lighting now. And that was born of the influence of becoming a director and becoming a producer and being involved on film sets and looking at the equipment they were using. And I was like, wow, that, that could work. And it really was driven by the idea that I still want my photos to feel individualized to me. Like I want people to see the photo and still know that I took it. And I think in this modern style, particularly overheads on white, everything is sort of becoming a little bit more homogenized over, you know, all platforms. That's a harder, that's a harder task. Uh, and I think the only way to separate myself in that environment is to light things in a way that is distinctive. So ultimately it really does. I want the food to still look delicious in this sort of modern fine arty kind of style. 
And the only way to do that was to really craft the light. Well, you've added director and producer to your resume since we've last chatted on air. That's right. And um, I caught a glimpse of, of Team Marco, a film that oh, you worked on. Yes. And um, it's interesting because it is about a child who is so into modern technology, iPad, Xbox, and his grandfather's the one that takes him out and uh, you know shows him the wonderful world of bocce, the, yeah. the greatest sport on earth. Yes, absolutely. Um, but it, it feels like you are also just getting back to the analog uh, realizing that it isn't these tricked out apps no. that, that make a fantastic photo. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the core of good photography is the frame and the light. And I think that if we consistently remind ourselves that it isn't about anything else than that, um, then we'll stay true to ourselves as artists. And I think that regardless, and I think becoming familiar with cinematographers and becoming close to them in the process of becoming a filmmaker has really reaffirmed that because when you're on set with a cinematographer and a gaffer and they're talking about how they're going to craft the light and shape the light and that light doesn't have enough shape for me and I had one sort of pivotal moment on Team Marco where we're in a gymnasium at the JCC on Staten Island and it's a really big gymnasium. It's huge. And we had a 20-foot black sail up as a neg we were using the light of the room and then we had two big m45 re lights pounding light in from one direction and i'm looking at this and i'm like this looks like my tabletop <laughs> times a thousand like the people were in the middle the light was coming from one direction the big neg flag was on the other side of it and i'm like this is exactly what i do in my studio except on a huge scale and that's what gave me the idea of starting to shoot with a sky panel. And that's how I started to, it took me a few months to sort of work out the details of how to make that light look like daylight on the tabletop. But once I, once I kind of got the, the nuts and bolts of it down, I was like, wow, this is, this is what I've been looking for all along. The real big picture show. <laughs> yes. Yes. Excellent. On that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, more Andrew Scrivani on the food scene. Cabot Creamery is proud to be celebrating 100 years making the world's finest dairy products. Cabot's award-winning cheddars and other dairy products stand apart because of their farmers' tireless dedication to quality and freshness, to healthy land and a sustainable future. A century after they started this journey, Cabot's farmer owners still know what matters most, family and community. The simple truth that we're stronger together than we are apart. That delicious products are the reward of a job well done. That when you love what you do this much, the best is always still to come. You listen to Heritage Radio Network because, let's face it, you have really good taste. You care about where your food comes from, who made it, and its impact on the planet. Whether you're looking for an inspiring interview with your favorite celebrity chef, the latest on Dave Arnold's Spins All, or if you want to get down and dirty with some agricultural policy... We've got you covered. 10 years in and 13,000 episodes later, HRN continues to be the go-to media outlet for thoughtful eaters like you. And we never could have done it without the support of our listeners. Help Food Radio continue in the future and help us raise enough funds for the year to come. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate today. And since you've got such good taste... 
we have some very cool member gifts for you to choose from. Thanks for listening and for being a part of the HRN community. Hey, welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael harlan Turkill, here again with famed food photographer Andrew Scrivani. And it was interesting. We, we finished the last part about uh, talking about film, about cinema. And I was recently in Tokyo uh, doing an ad campaign, and my photos were okay, but I was also shooting some video. And it's funny, with a still camera, sometimes you forget to move. Then having a video camera in my hand, sometimes I forget I can move with that too. But once I realized that I had motion in front of me and that I could be part of that motion as well, it, it made me rethink photography a little. Sure. Um, th- there's a great part. I'm honored to be part of this book that you have because on page 60, uh, 96 through 97, um, you talk about table geometry. And we, we taught a class years ago together at Star Chefs. And it was really interesting because I, I didn't realize that it had stuck with you as much. I mean, I've always admired your work and your workflow, etc. And I think we are simpatico, but we are definitely contrasting uh, sure. thinkers. Um, but that you saw the table in a different light that day as well. Sure. So can you talk to me about what table geometry means to you? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the thing that, that stuck with me at that point was when I was a teacher back you know, in my prior life, uh, I had to do a professional development workshop about the about teaching children who have different learning styles. And I don't mean learning styles like learning disabilities. I mean, like, I'm a right brain thinker, I'm a left brain thinker, I'm a middle brain thinker. And that episode, you and I kind of undertook on teaching that classroom uh, table geometry made me realize that in the same moment, that we were teaching both left brain thinkers and right brain thinkers with very different language about the very same thing. Mm-hmm. And it really stuck with me because it kind of brought back that professional development um, episode that I had when I was a teacher. And it made me realize this is something I need to express to my readers, potential readers in writing this book was that I had this sort of aha moment that it was in real, you know, this real pragmatic piece of information and teaching people that you can think of things from your perspective, but as a teacher, you have to make sure you communicate that on both sides of the brain. And you being more of a mathematical left brain thinker and me being more of a creative right brain thinker, we've sort of put those two things together and it worked really well for that group. Yeah, this the synergy was so amazing that I, I still teach it today. And you know, for years I call it the twelve-step uh, approach, but then with the whole AA thing, I'm like maybe not. So now I call it the twelve-angle <laughs> approach. Um, the thing about it is that we both realized that there are certain perspectives. There's a chef, there's a diner, and then the photographer. Right. Sure. Um, and then on top of that, that you can move around a table, move around a space, and there are that many more. When I teach it in class, I, I tell them. You know, the zero forty five ninety, And mm-hmm. you'll have to get Andrew's book to see exactly what we're talking about. Um, and then I tell him to go around the table at 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock. But uh, I've only recently realized that some of my students don't know how to read analog clocks. Okay. So now it's north, south, east, west. But you got to remember now, if you're going to teach it that way, we usually use one single light source. Yes. And we do not want to shoot in the same direction as the light source. So it 
it eliminates one of the of the four angles. Yeah, I, I try to make them realize that by process of elimination. That's, well, sure, yeah. right? Because when you're shooting with the light and everything flattens out and it looks awful, you're like, oh god, that's terrible. Yeah. So, uh, but look at cookbooks or magazines today. You know, often I see everything you know in that vertical frame, backlit, the shadow in front of us. I also make my students do like pin the tail on the donkey where. I asked him where the light. Where is the light coming from? It's it's, it's the same thing I do in workshops. Yeah, it's an, it's absolutely an essential aspect of teaching young photographers, you know, the craft. Yeah, but this all this talks about a still image, and what what I have always loved about your work, and especially the cover uh, of that photo makes me hungry, is the implied motion. I mean, it's not even implied; it's kinetic energy happening right here. Yeah, um, what is that? capture to you? What is that moment you're looking for? You know, I've been describing it recently as a continuum, right? In that we experience food in a continuum, right? You know, we, we are interactive with food, right? It's not, it's the, I try to express that in the way I shoot food in that it's not a static endeavor. We are cutting the food, we're putting, picking it up on a fork, we're pouring it off a spoon. You know, everything about our interaction with food is cinematic. And I think thinking of that way, like we're capturing a moment in a, in, a, in a moving image. And if we're thinking of it in those terms, everything feels like it comes to life. And I really try to implied motion or actual motion, you know, freeze-framed motion, however you want to, um, you know, express it. But the reality is that think of it in terms of a film strip or a piece of, a piece of running film or on a timeline of a video and you just grab that one single moment that is the best representation of what you're trying to get across. And that's sort of how I approach a lot of these things. But then, are you trying to do that in real time? Uh, are you trying to take that mise-en-scene, or are you still being as methodical about getting to that point uh, of, you know, th that image that you have a stylist, you have all your props laid out? H how do you... I mean, I organize think, or have you reorganized the way you think about shoots? Well, I think in terms of the, the timing aspect of how I want to execute each shot. So when I get a recipe, I, I run down the recipe and I write notes on it and I say, I want to capture in this part of the process. I want to capture in this part of the process. I want to capture in this part of the process. So my stylists understand that there's going to be an interruption in their, in their workflow. So, because I want that shot and I know that it can only happen before the food is finished or, you know, because that, that was for drizzling on, uh, on a brownie or something, or it was a baked dish that had a drizzle of chocolate on it. But I took the time to write out a script, you know, to write out a, a storyboard of each shoot. And I want to be able to deliver to my client this sort of cinematic approach to the whole process. And if you don't want to use them, great. I mean, it's okay, but that's how I work now. It's like everything I do goes through that process because I feel like so much of the great captures I've gotten have been before the final, you know, before the final dish or after we've gotten the final shot and then started to break it down. You know, we started to interact with it in a way that a diner would interact with food. Um, and those artfully sprinkled crumbs or those little drips and everything else, they're intentional. But they're meant to evoke the idea that we are part. We are experiencing the food, not just um, not just uh, observing the food. But does that get boring? I mean, are there any surprises left in food photography? Uh, sometimes. I mean, I think I think you're absolutely accurate in that. You know, when you've done this as long as we've done it, it's very hard to surprise us. But 
that makes the surprises that much better. So what has recently surprised you? What are the epiphanies? Oh, gosh. I mean, most recently, you know, I'm working with a new stylist, right? Uh, I've been training her, um, and she's fantastic. And I think that the things that trusting other people's eyes and capturing things that they're seeing, so, like, she'll alert me and she'll be like, this is amazing, you should look at this. And there are times when she's seeing things that I'm not seeing, right? And that's maybe I'm you don't jaded. Mean like ghosts. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, maybe the ghosts of food photography past. Yeah. But like sometimes she's seeing things with fresh eyes, right? And trusting that she's seeing things creatively from a from a different perspective is really helpful. And it is a revelation because sometimes I'm not I you know, you become a little jaded. And you're like, yeah, it's not, it's just not going to happen in, in the process today. The process has nothing to offer me. And then she'll pick something up and be like, this is really cool. And I'll be like, oh, you're right. Let's get that over into the, into the set and, and see what we can get out of it. So I think it's about, you know, the collaboration, the trust, and the fact that, you know, you're working with the same people and you're training them as to what you, they know what my photography looks like, right? They understand the process and the fact is they're there with me right they're in they're in my head now and they're like an extra set of eyes so i don't know that it's any one specific dish or one specific thing but it's this part of the process that's become new for me well having seen so much and you know we're a very cyclical industry every you know six three to six months before thanksgiving there are turkeys (laughs) uh you know we already did our holidays uh, how do you change how we see those things? Uh, I mean, are you constantly every year trying to, you know, is there one upmanship? Well, uh, I mean, the one, the one recent episode, I wouldn't say particularly recent, but what, the one episode of that was uh, Art of the Pie, right? Four and 20 Blackbirds was a killer book. And it was Gentle and Hires. And I, I looked at that book and I said, how did they shoot this book on the budget I know they had? You know, this is a new author. They probably didn't get a tremendous amount of money. And they hired two of the best people in, in the whole business. And I was like, all right, the gauntlet has been thrown, <laughs> right? And honestly, uh, that level of competitiveness that I take with me from my athletic days, it, it, that doesn't leave me. And it's really nice to have a dragon to slay. Yeah. And in that project, you know, having 4 and 20 out there as, you know, one of the more popular and and successful cookbooks on the, on the subject matter that I was working on, sort of hanging out there as a as the as the goal, um, really motivated me. It really did. I'm gonna make my students listen to this because I try to try to push this point. Like, do your research. Um, I, I photographed a book about jam, and I took out every book out you know in the world about jam. Right. And I came away with the two tenets of. Uh, no jam in jars and no jam spread on bread. Okay. <laughs> I just don't want to do either of those things. Yeah, and you're absolutely right because so, it's been done. Yeah, right. so I photographed 50 swatches of jam. We just poured jam and jellies out on like uh, transparent, translucent surfaces sure. from underneath on mylar. It was very sticky. And then handed <laughs> it in as full page bleeds and the publisher said, what? What is this? Eventually overlay, text overlay happened and they loved it, but it took some convincing. Right. I mean, I think that's exactly it, right? Is that we're always looking for something new to do in this. And it's getting harder and harder and harder because, you know, as the archive of what we've done in, in our careers has grown to, you know, exponentially over the course of the last 10 to 15 years, it's really hard to reinvent something. And 
I am always like you looking for the unusual or the sort of unexpected way to shoot something. Most people look at Instagram, click on hashtags. Do you sit there and mine data through there? Do you do, you do your empirical research? Uh, I do some on Instagram. I do some on Google. I, I go and look. I still pull tear sheets out of um, out of magazines. I still have a folder full of great pieces that I see in Food and Wine or you know or in Bon App or wherever. You know, I still some other like I have friends in Europe that will send me sort of food food like trendy food magazines that are coming from there i think like noble rot and things like that um and i like to see what's happening you know like what's the trend and then you know recently things have really sort of leveled off we went in through that hard light stage that we went through for a couple of years and that's sort of tailing off and then we went through the buzzfeed tasty influenced everything is shot from the top and I think we're starting to move off that again. And I feel like uh, the styles that we've become accustomed to and comfortable in have sort of started to cycle back again, which I'm very grateful for. Yeah, and I love the book because it has all this commentary, all the banter you just heard over the past 30 minutes or, or that much more, you know, within the, the binding of that makes uh, that photo makes me hungry. Um, but what I also love is that you have a quote um, from, from a past interview we did, and you said... Uh, I don't know that I've ever been afraid to share. People told me that I was giving away some of the trade secrets. It's not about camera settings. It's about your eye, your vision. Do you still believe that's true? More than ever. More than ever. Because we're so saturated with food, photography, and otherwise, um, that you know, video and everything else, we're, we're, the amount of food visuals out there in the, in the market is still only discernibly different by someone's eye. Because... You can be a, a great capture artist. You can be a, a terrific lighter. You still need to see it. You still need to see it the way you want to see it. And I see food intimately, and I try to express that in the way I shoot. Uh, I want all that emotion and the things that connect me to food to feel like it's in the photo. And that is, you know, that is sort of filtered through the eyes. And I think ultimately I could teach you. And I've done this. I've done this in a classroom. You should try this in your classroom, right? Set something up. Take a picture. Don't show anybody the picture. Then give your students the same camera with the same settings and have them take the picture. And then put them up on the screen and notice how different they are. It's, rem it's a remarkable exercise for teaching. Or it might just bring you into class. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Sh show and tell Scrivani. Uh, I mean, I'm happy. I'm happy to do it. I love it. I mean, again, you, and not just this book, you have given a lot of food photographers the lexicon, the confidence, and the wherewithal to realize that they can do it for themselves um, and have their own specific style. So, you know, thank you for the past 10 years plus well, of that. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. I think my former life as a teacher sort of influenced me in wanting to continue to be that. And it's, it's one thing to be a leader in an industry, but it's also another thing to be a teacher and, and, and to be able to sort of uh, have a little bit of both of that in, in my career over the past 15 years. I, I hope I share that in the book. And uh, I've always appreciated uh, your ability to talk this with me because it is, <laughs> I love to geek out with yeah. you as well, but also the, the graciousness of being on this show oh. three times. It's yeah. been great. Well, uh, on that note, thank you so much for being on. I, I wanted to end with a little note that, of course, I'm going to get choked up a little. Um, this might be my last show. Well, I'm not sure what's, uh, what I'm going to do yet. Um, Heritage has been such a big part of my life for 10 years. Uh, 
400 plus shows. I've had wonderful people like you on thrice. Uh, I just want to thank everybody, my listeners, Heritage, Patrick, Jack Inslee for recording my first episode, so many more people throughout the years who have listened to me babble on for what I thought initially was my own self-interest, and I felt very lucky to have this great networking tool to just pick the minds of people that I I respect and, you know, that should be held in some kind of honorific light, and um, I just hope everyone listens to the archives and that these exist somewhere in a special place, because they do in my heart. Well, the industry owes you a great debt, Michael. Thank uh, you. I, I'm honored to have been, if this is your last episode, I, I'm honored to be the bookends. Yeah. And uh, I've always admired you and, and your passion for this. And uh, and if this is uh, the at the end of an era, then it's been quite a run. I mean, HRN already said, doors open, return whenever you, you know, I, I have some life things going on. I have a son. Who knows? You know, I, I want to be part of this community and I hope to return to the airwaves soon. So on that note, a big thank you to Cabot Cheese. And I mean, if that wasn't enough of a heartfelt uh, ask to donate to Heritage Radio, please go on to heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. And, you know, this is a very important thing. Food Radio has brought so much to so many people. Uh, A big shout out to Music by Cookies, Matt Patterson Engineering. Um, this is Michael Harlan Turkel. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And, you know, I hope you keep on listening in. Cheers. The Food Scene is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage, and thanks for listening.